Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm your host, Eric Scopel. Today's a solo show, which means the only voice you're going to be hearing today will be mine. Um, I guess if you're somebody who prefers Matt's voice or, or Matt's takes, and I'm the one that makes you click out of the podcast app every now and then, this might be one that you're going to sit out, but it's going to be just my voice here for however long I decide to talk. I haven't really set like a I have a a show planned here. I think it's going to be a fun show, but I I don't go in having really an idea of how long this is going to take. So if we're here for 30 minutes, we're here 30 minutes. If we're here longer, that's great. If we're here less, that's great too. Um, But I wanted to tackle a couple of different things on today's show. I wanted to look a little bit at Oregon's season upcoming and, and look at it from the lens of who Oregon's playing and so we'll do that. And, and then later in the show, I want to look at a little bit of the historic recruiting success Oregon has had under Mario Cristobal, how talented this current roster is, and, and kind of how all of that ties together with what I think is going to be a really, really fun football season in 21 um, with this program. But back to where I wanted to start, which is, you know, I, it's funny. I, I took a vacation in, in June, and I came back. And I'll be honest, prior to the vacation, I uh, probably hadn't spent a lot of time thinking or looking into Oregon's upcoming opponents. It's not to say like I, I didn't know who they were playing or, or that I was unfamiliar with the schedule in any way. I, I've spent time looking at it and spent time, you know, doing kind of the precursory deep dive into those programs. But for this last week or so, with Matt being gone and, and just with wait, where the time is at, I'll be honest, things kind of caught up to me or I wasn't expecting – Honestly, it doesn't feel like it's mid-July for whatever reason, and that's maybe just I'm not good at paying attention to the calendar, but it kind of you know, snuck up on me. So I've spent the last week looking a lot more closely at Oregon's schedule, and I think a lot of it that I've taken away is really positive. And I, I want to start today, and we're going to probably do a couple podcasts with this. Maybe Matt will be with me on the next one. But I want to start today talking about the offenses and looking at the offenses Oregon is facing this upcoming season. 12-game um, schedule. Oregon fans know that. Those listening know that. Nine conference games, three non-conference games, one of those being the marquee game in Columbus. And, I, and I've spent some time just kind of looking at these offenses. So let's start here. Um, Oregon is not facing collectively a group of offenses quarterbacked by Heisman Trophy candidates or elite guys or really guys with experience at all. Um, so of the 12 regular season opponents on the schedule at the moment right now, only four of them, I think, for sure know who their quarterback is right now. And you can say, well, that's not a huge thing. Oregon doesn't know who its quarterback is right now, and I would probably agree with you on that part. But it is sort of an interesting landscape in the Pac-12 this year, at least the teams Oregon plays, where of the teams on Oregon's Pac-12 conference schedule, only UCLA and Cal are returning a quarterback who's like their surefire starter. And obviously you have Dorian Thompson-Robinson at, at UCLA and you have Chase Garbers at Cal. Those guys Oregon has faced a couple of times. They're familiar with those players. Both accomplished quarterbacks at this level. I don't think there's any question about it. But neither guy is like a really a star player from my perspective. And in previous meetings, it's not like either guy has really lit Oregon up. You think about last year's disappointing loss to Cal don't think Garbers really was the reason Cal won that game. I think that was an inability from Oregon's offense to move the football. And frankly, you go back and you watch it more closely. Cal had a bunch of success 
on drives that were extended because of organ mistakes, because of penalties, um, because of errors on fourth and short plays, on jumping off sides when you shouldn't, when on knocking a quarterback down when you shouldn't, those kind of things. I didn't think Garbers like blew them out of the water. And the other two quarterbacks that Oregon will face this year that have experience or that are at least right now, I think are, are, are destined to be the quarterback starting quarterback and there's no qualms about it are Fresno State's Jake Hayner and Stony Brook's Triquel Fields, Tyquel Fields. Um, Hayner's a good quarterback. He started his career at Washington and, you know, I think there's a chance he ends up being, very much a serviceable player. And I should note, I, I kind of buried the lead here. I do have a couple stories on deckterritory.com this week looking at the upcoming quarterbacks and then another story, and I'll get this to it in a second. This ties in the upcoming running backs and receivers Oregon faces. So basically stories looking at the quarterbacks and skill position players, the offenses as a whole for this upcoming season. And what I come away with just overall, and we'll touch on the second part and the running back wide receiver part in a minute, is there's just not a lot of experience back and not a lot of the top guys from the conference are returning or, or top guys period are returning. Like I talk about the conference and, and how I don't feel great about a lot of the quarterbacks in the conference. Like we should know, I just, the other two players on this list who, or I should say other two schools on this list that, that have quarterbacks back are, are Stony Brook and Fresno state non-conference teams, Ohio state who Oregon opens the field for the season with, it's going to be a five, former five-star quarterback probably, but it's going to be somebody who's never played significant snaps for the Buckeyes so this goes all the way down the list I mean you, you run through their schedule and it's not exactly running the gamut of offenses quarterback by star players or even offenses with a lot of star players around those quarterbacks I, I, I say all this to, to say I, I and I don't want to put the cart before the horse here because I think there's some things Oregon's defense needs to figure out with Tim DeRuiter but I think there's reason to be really optimistic going into 21 just about based upon what the opposition looks like. Um, I have my rankings on 24 seven sports on duckterritory.com of the quarterbacks. I'll let you go ahead and, and, and read those, but I'll give you the top four in my, in the conference or I should say, sorry, I keep saying in the conference, the top four from my perspective, which are Ohio state, number one, and I'm going on that based purely on the talent factor. Neither Kyle McCord, CJ Stroud, or Jake Miller have ever really seen the field. I think there's 18 snaps combined between the three of them at this level. McCord and Stroud are five-star recruits. One of those guys is going to start against Oregon on September 11th, and one of them is probably going to be a pretty darn good player. But it's going to be their first big marquee football game, and that's not a bad thing at all. Number two on this list, I have Washington's quarterback room. And I should say this, I didn't rank these by quarterback. I, I'm ranking these based upon the school that these quarterbacks play on because there's so much uncertainty on this list about who is actually set to be the starting quarterback. Washington brings back Dylan Morris, who was, I think, solid, steady last year. He's still a freshman, at least right now, in terms of the classification, younger quarterback. But they also have Sam Heward, who's the highest-rated quarterback the school's ever landed, one of the top recruits the school's landed, period. Um, and I think that's a talented enough room that I put them number two. And if you're going like, wow, that seems really high for Washington, I think it's less a I – mean, I don't want to say Washington doesn't have great players, but I think it's more of just like an indictment on the conference and the rest of these schools in general. 
because then you go down my list and I go Cal and UCLA at three and four. And that's purely because, as I said, with Garbers and Thompson Robinson, those guys are experienced. I've seen them play the position. I've seen them start at this level. They've won some games at this level. You know, I think Cal has some flaws as a team, but Garbers has at least guided them to some success. Um, and then the same thing with, with DTR at, at UCLA. But like, I think that sort of paints the picture here of, of when we're talking about the four best quarterbacks Oregon might face in 2021. It's like Ohio State, based purely on the reputation of the school and the recruit. It's Washington, based kind of on the same sort of thing of like, I know Morris and Heward were highly regarded guys. And Morris, at least at times last year, looked competent enough to, to win football games. Washington got out to a, you know, a, three and, a three and one start. Actually, I think a three and zero oh start with Morris. And the numbers aren't amazing. He threw, I think, what, three touchdown passes the whole season, four touchdown passes the entire season in, in four games. So it's not like he blew, blew anybody out of the water with his arm or threw the ball around like that. But I, I, I sort of trust the caliber of recruit there. And then it's two quarterbacks at Cal and UCLA who I would say, like, neither are elite top talent quarterbacks. Who, But the only reason that they're on this list is because they're experienced. Because you go down further on the list and or just the other schools, and, and it's, it's, you're not certain of who the guy is going to be. And there might be some players in a couple of these schools that have at least started at other universities. Um, but even those guys aren't that grandiose of players. And like the, the, the funny one is, is on this is I probably came in thinking I was going to rank Sam Neuer higher. He was a second team all Pac-12 conference quarterback last year. He's transferred from Colorado to Oregon State. And there's no like guarantee he's the starter there. He's going to have to battle out Tristan Gebbia and Chance Nolan for that job. So, like I said, you run one through four. I ran through that. I'll let you read the story to go five through 12 on kind of how I rank the rest of it. But it's not exactly the murderer's row of quarterbacks that you would maybe think to or expect to see on a schedule. Like, like there's, I think, a chance that Oregon maybe doesn't face a guy this entire season who's going to be, like, drafted in the first four rounds maybe ever or at least not anyone immediately. Like, yeah, I could see Heward maybe or whoever winds up being the quarterback at Ohio State being, you know, a first or second round pick eventually. But those guys are really young in the early infancy stages, if you will, of their careers. So there's quarterback. And then you go down to running backs and receivers, and it's – from my perspective, I go, like, Ohio State has – and, I, again, I did a story on this ranking, the 10 most problematics running backs and wide receivers Oregon will face in 2021 that's on duckterritory.com so go check that out if you want more detail on this but I put this together and, and I'll be honest I was uh I was a little surprised by how few Pac-12 guys I really thought were deserving like I, I so I did 10 players and four of the top five guys on my list are out of non-conference games four out of the five I have one guy from the Pac-12 as being one of the top five skill position guys Oregon's going to face this year. And it's not like, and, and, and part of this is Oregon does miss USC. They do miss Arizona state. Um, USC in particular, would probably have a, a number of receivers high on that list, but you look at it from like last year's perspective of um, like one way to look at it is the all conference teams from last year two running backs, two wide receivers on the first team, two running backs, two wide receivers on the second team. 
Oregon's going to face two out of those eight players in 2021. Six of those guys are guys that aren't on the schedule. A couple of them have gone pro. A couple of them play at USC. So those guys are not going to be around. But, like, I just think that's sort of emblematic of the schedule this year from, like, an offensive perspective. You're looking at a – especially the teams that Oregon plays. And I don't want to disparage USC because I think they have a lot of talent. And that's probably a team that if this was – if I'm being honest, the more I look at it, they're probably the favorite to be – the representative of the Pac-12 South is a team Oregon will probably face anyway, but that's not what the exercise was because I wasn't making any sort of prognostications on who was going to be there. Needless to say, I think you look through here and I felt pretty good putting this together. So like I said, as I said, and this is the other interesting part, I have no players from the Washington Huskies on this entire list. I don't look at their skill guys and think there's much there to be worried about right now. Wide receiver in particular, I think they had five guys transfer at that position. I mean, they're very, very slim there. And the guys that they have back mostly weren't massive contributors exactly the last couple of years. I have two guys from Washington State on the list. And like I just said, most of the top guys are out of conference. The fact that Washington State, I think, may have the best skill guys Oregon's going to face, you know, maybe collectively in the conference, that should say quite a bit. And, 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 you know, and, and the football game is not just one based upon the way the defense succeeds against the offense. There's the flip side of that, and then there's special teams, and there's a lot of other things that go into these games and, and, and whatnot. But I, I, I think you can convince yourself, or maybe I'm just doing it right now, that this schedule is, is a little bit more friendly than I had thought, um, at least in conference play. That game on September 11th in Columbus is going to be Really, really tough. I, uh, three of my top five guys are from Ohio State, and two of my top three are Ohio State receivers. Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson are potentially first-round draft picks in 2022. Could be like top 10, top 15 guys. That's about as talented of a duo as you're going to face. Olave is, I think, considered maybe a little bit of the higher-rated guy, but it's, that's going to be a challenge. And Oregon's going to learn a lot there. But the positive from that is I think the next best receiver Oregon is going to face might be like Washington State's Renard Bell. Like for real, in the Pac-12, the guys that they face. And there's going to be some guys that jump up and, and, and surprise me this season. I have no doubt. There could be some freshmen on teams that are going to come in and surprise me. There could be guys that haven't played much that are going to come and surprise me. But I have Renard Bell, Britton Covey, and Nico Ramigio as the three best receivers Oregon's facing in the Pac-12. <laughs> That's not exactly like terrifying stuff. And, and again, I, don't, I laugh and I, I don't want to be diminishing of opposing offenses, but the exercise was kind of telling of I'm running through here expecting there to be a bunch of guys that are, are really, really talented that have torched Oregon in the past or have NFL draft ceilings that are you know, there's no Nikhil Harry on the schedule, right? Or from a couple of years ago, or the five guys USC had last year, for that matter. There just isn't. And it's, it's, so it's kind of an interesting exercise in, in terms of thinking about these opposing offenses in the Pac-12. Um, it's, it, you know, and, and I should say, Bell, Covey, and Remigio are all like undersized kind of more slot sort of receivers. The type of guys that have traditionally given Oregon a lot of trouble have been guys on the outside and I don't know if there are many guys this year that 
pose those sort of problems. And that could be a real big advantage. If you think about Oregon's young secondary, some of the guys at corner that are going to be filling and mostly are going to be players who haven't played. There might not be a lot of guys that can challenge them with their size, at least downfield. I don't know. This is all, this is all from a glance in July and there's going to be a lot of developments and there's going to be a lot of things that probably change. And there's going to be players, like I said, that step in and there's a ton of talent in this conference. I still think that, but I, I came away from this exercise thinking I don't have any doubts. Ohio state's offense is going to be really challenging and that that is going to be a very, very difficult game. They're going to have the two guys on I mentioned in the conference, not having guys that will challenge you. They'll have two guys that are going to absolutely give Oregon fits on the outside. And I'm sure they're going to have a couple of other guys that are developing or guys that maybe don't have the resume right now that will also challenge Oregon. And they still have master Teague. He's been one of the top running backs in their team for a couple of years. He shared backfields with JK Dobbins and Trey Sermon. He's been kind of waiting in the wings. I have him fifth on my list. I think he's going to be really, really talented and really a tough matchup too. So I think Ohio state from an offense perspective, that's going to be undoubtedly, by a large margin, your toughest offense to face. Pac-12, maybe there's not a lot that scare me right now, is, is, is my takeaway. And I think some of this is like I, I'm focusing on personnel. There's a lot of offenses that, have cha- that typically challenge Oregon because of non, not entirely personnel perspective, right? Like schematically, they, are, they challenge Oregon. You think about the way Mike Leach offenses never having that elite top draft choice guy not even usually having a quarterback who's that kind of a guy, but always finding ways to win games and and, and win one-on-one matchups and get the ball in space. There's going to be teams that do that, but I think from a personnel perspective, it could be kind of a down year in the Pac-12. And maybe this is a year where, at receiver at least, and maybe running back, Oregon gets a couple of guys on one of these all-conference teams. That'd be fun. Been a minute since that's happened. Uh, (laughs) And I say that, Kind of jokingly, but also like the reality is Oregon at receiver has not received much attention for a very long time. You have to go back to Dylan Mitchell to, to, for there to be a guy that wasn't an all-conference team. Maybe, the, maybe this year that changes just because the league's a little watered down. I know USC has some good players. That brings me to just another kind of transitional segment I wanted to do, just reacting to and I think this is actually probably the right way, the next place to go, because it does sort of jump off from what I was just talking about, which is that maybe the league's a little watered down on offense. ESPN and its FPI, Football Power Index model, um, released its latest findings on Thursday. And it's not very nice to the Pac-12, like at all. <laughs> In fact, like, here, here, here's... The statistic that probably irks you the most if you're a supporter of the Pac-12. The SEC has almost four times better odds, according to the FPI, of sending two teams to the college football playoff than the Pac-12 has of sending one. Let me say that again because it's crazy to me. The FPI thinks the SEC has four times better chance, 34% odds, of sending two teams to the field, to the four-team field, by the way. There's 34% chance of having half the teams, and the Pac-12 has a 9% chance of having one team in the field. 9%. There's a 91% chance, according to the model, that the conference 
for the sixth straight year is not represented in this. That sucks. <laughs> I don't know if I really disagree. And to put it into perspective, like it's not like the model thinks really low of any of the other quote unquote power five. And I say quote unquote, because according to this projection, it kind of seems like a power four plus the pac 12. The SEC has 94% chance of sending at least one team. The ACC and big 12 have 82 and 81% chances. And the big 10 has 63% chance according to this. So the other four conferences have it at least basically two thirds percent chance of doing this. The SEC is, is, is like almost like a, almost, almost a hundred percent. Like they're going to get a team in. They've never not had a team in. And I think again, you know, and, and the, some, what the FPI does is look through previous teams, rosters and the successes they've had and matches it up with the team they're playing next. And it's just basically boom, boom, boom. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying and there's, I could probably go pull up the exact methodology if I wanted to, but I'm just going to keep it quick. But they basically go matchup by matchup. And the suggestion here is that the Pac-12 doesn't have that elite team. In fact, no team from the Pac-12. I don't think this is a surprise if you've looked at a lot of the preseason stuff. No team in the Pac-12 in the top 10. Oregon is closest at 12th. Top 10 is all SEC, ACC, Big 10. Notre Dame's in there. A couple of Big 12 teams, Iowa State, actually number nine. Team Oregon knows pretty well. But no elite team in the Pac-12. And then the second part that they talk about here is, is the fact that Oregon plays Ohio State and USC plays Notre Dame. And those are probably the two teams from the Pac-12 that have the best chance of doing something like making a run. And they both face teams that are inside the top eight of the FPI, teams that they think are going to win those games. They think Notre Dame and Ohio State are going to win those games. And if that happens, the Pac-12 goes 0-2 in those matchups, probably forces both Oregon and USC to need to like run the table until they theoretically were to meet in the Pac-12 conference championship game. And if that takes place, that's great. But the reality is, and I know Matt and I have talked about this a number of times, no Pac-12 team has gone undefeated. I think period. Like never happened in conference play. The last team to go 9-0 was Oregon. I think that was the last year before it went Pac-12. And that was the year they went and lost to Auburn in the national championship. So for Oregon or USC to do this, they, if they did, in theory, lose one of those games, they would have to run the table in conference play, something that hasn't happened in like 10 years. It's not easy. It's, not, it's a tough ask. So do with what, you know, I guess do with that with, you know, what you want. I know I posted this information on uh, duckterritory.com. A lot of people basically said they didn't really want to hear it, <laughs> that they didn't want to do anything with it. And I get that. But I think it's important to at least acknowledge the fact that going into the season, there's pretty good chance that there's not a team in the college football playoff. And again, running through what I saw looking at some of the offenses in the conference, I get why. I do. I think the conference is not in a great place from a football talent perspective. I think it's, and we're going to get in a second here to why I think Oregon can be the one to change that, but it's a weird year. And I will say like, I think if Oregon had Justin Herbert at quarterback or just like a known, let's say it's Tyler Shuck and he had a really did not have the end of the season he did. And he comes back and he's 
the quarterback that we saw early in the season, but he got better. Let's say there was an, you know, an incline, not a decline to his progression over the course of last season. And we're, we're basing, you know, and we're entering the season with folks thinking he's a probable first team all conference quarterback and a potential all American quarterback. I'm not saying Tyler Shuck was ever going to be that. I think we saw pretty clearly he wasn't, but I'm saying hypothetically, then I think Oregon really would have a shot to beat Ohio State, like a really good shot to beat Ohio State, a really good shot. And then if they win that game, that opens things up completely differently. But that really is the linchpin for the entire Pac-12 season, I think, are those two non-conference games. Oregon at Ohio State and USC at Notre Dame. And if the Pac-12 goes 0-2 there, I think it's going to be really hard to get a team in. All right, and I wanted to close the show looking at some recruiting stuff. And I know we talked about some of this on the mailbag with Jared on Wednesday, which, by the way, if you haven't listened, go check that out. Matt's on vacation this week. That's why I'm doing this show alone. And it's why on Wednesday I had Jared on to answer some questions. It was a great show. I really did. The Jared was, was fantastic for his first time in that kind of a role doing a podcast. Thought I did okay leading the show. You can in the comments tell me I didn't. That's fine. <laughs> or tell me I did. I'll take the praise. But we talked a little bit about, there was a question from, I think it was Garrett. And he asked a question about, is Oregon really just going to go on a run here of landing the best ever recruit at every position year in and year out? And our answers were both yes. And I had done a little bit of research into why I thought that was the case. And the cliff notes for that were, and again, if you listen to the podcast, you know, six out of the 10 positions that I looked at on Oregon's roster, Oregon had landed the number one player at that position in the last five cycles. And so I went a little deeper into this today just to provide a little more context. I also post, this is also going to be another instance where I'm talking about content for things that I wrote on the site. So there's a story up on duckterritor.com that posted Friday morning titled the best recruits Oregon has landed by position. And I just wanted to basically lay it out of like, okay, we talked about the top, top guys, the cave on and the Ty Thompson's. And, you know, in the past, the Jonathan Stewart's or, you know, Cameron Colvin's or Haloti Nada's, those kind of players. But we didn't talk about nine, you know, the guys after, the nine players after on a top 10 list. So I, what I wanted to do today was, and you, I'm not going to go through every position group because I think that gets a little bit old. But I wanted to run through where some of the players on this roster currently rank to put into perspective how talented this team is compared to previous teams. And here's just like one data point that I think is important to start with. So what I've done here is, is gone through all the different position groups and come out with the 10 best players to ever sign or commit to Oregon from those groups. 36 players on Oregon's current roster are on one of those lists. So 36 players currently on Oregon's roster, mind you, there's about 85 guys, are among the 10 best recruits to ever pick Oregon at their respective positions. And, that, and I expanded this a little bit. I, uh, I added athletes to the list. Athletes are players that coming out of high school. There's no clear designation for if they're going to play position X or position Y. So we label them athletes. Oregon's had some success with these guys. They've had some not so much success with those guys. 
Eric Armstead was a player who was listed as an athlete, even though I think it was pretty clear coming in he was going to be a defensive tackle. But he was also an elite offensive tackle. That's kind of what an athlete is. So I added that to this list. And I, um, I, I, did, I did that because I realized there were some pretty top-tier guys that weren't being included in this list if I, if I went the other way with it. So that's on here too. So I've expanded a little bit. I believe there are like 110 players included on the whole thing. But 36 of those guys are currently on the roster. And seven of those guys are players in the 2022 class who are committed already. Kelvin Banks being the most notable, the top offensive line recruit Oregon's ever signed. But I just want to run through some positions here and give you an indication of just how loaded Oregon is at a few spots. So like quarterback. And those listening probably know this one better than the rest just because we talk a lot about quarterback. But Oregon's 10 top, you know, 10 highest rated quarterback recruits. Three of them are currently on the roster. And then Tanner Bailey, who just is, is set to sign, assuming he sticks with Oregon in December as part of the 2022 class, is also on this list. So four of the top 10 quarterbacks Oregon has ever landed will either be on this year's roster or next. And there's a problem, there's a chance, I don't know how high the likelihood, a chance that all four of them are there. And that's Ty Thompson, the number one rated guy, Jay Butterfield, the sixth best, Tanner Bailey, the eighth best, and Robbie Ashford, the 10th best. I'll let you look at the entire list because I think it's worth, I think personally, it's honestly really fun running through this and and going through it from a historical perspective, especially if you've been an Oregon fan for a really long time, because you're going to know a lot of these names and some of them you're going to have remembered watching and loving them like a Dennis Dixon, who's number three on this list. And some of them you're going to be like, I don't know that guy was on the team. I don't remember that like Jake Rodriguez or Morgan Mahalik, notably like no Marcus Mariota on here. That's for the stars don't matter crowd, I guess, but that's quarterback. And I thought that was just a good place to start because this is a spot where Oregon is absolutely loaded. And then how about wide receiver? Three of the top five players are currently on the roster. Troy Franklin, Dante Thornton from 2021 are two and three. And number five is Micah Pittman. Number nine on the list is Lance Wilhoyt, who's the fourth highest rated recruit among this group, ironically. And I say ironically because he's probably the guy on the entire roster I'm least confident is going to have like a role of any kind this year at receiver. But I mean, I think this sort of tells us what we saw in the spring, which is Oregon's got a lot of talent receiver. Three of the top five guys are on the team this year. And boy, with the way things are going in this upcoming class and the future, I think that list is going to have, it's going to grow. There's going to be some more guys on there. I'll put it that way. Offensive line. This is pretty silly. Of the top 10 guys, two of them are from the pre-Mario Cristobal era. Two of them. I'm not talking offensive coordinator either, like head coach. Eight of the 10 guys are guys Mario Cristobal helped bring to Oregon offensive line. Talk about completely reworking and rewriting the future for a position group. Kelvin Banks is number one. Most know that. But Kingsley Sumatia is number two. Bram Walden, also from the 2021 class, is number six, along with Jackson Powers Johnson, another member of that class. Nine and 10 are a couple of older guys, veteran guys on the roster. Big Sala, he's number nine, and Stephen Jones is 10. The other two, you know, and, and I mentioned eight out of 10. I just ran through six, if you include Kelvin Banks. Penny Su and Jonah Toyanu 
class of 2018 and 2019 offensive line recruits. Susan Sewell has gone pro since, and unfortunately, Toyano had to medically retire. But I read all this to say, like, the offensive line situation, it is pretty much impossible to argue that this isn't going to be on paper the most talented collection of offensive linemen Oregon has ever had. And you think, and Jared and I did talk about this on Wednesday, 2021, you're going to have a lot of younger guys that are going to be waiting but it's going to be the older guys that are probably starting the big Salas, the Steven Joneses Jones might not even start actually Alex Forsyth, TJ Bass, George Moore, those kind of names. But a lot of those guys are in their fifth, sixth year of eligibility right now. Older guys are in their mid twenties now might be their final season. And I think 2022 could be a year where you see a lot of really young, talented guys take over. And by 2023, this could be just like some scary stuff. Mario Crispo's finally starting to get his elite top, you know, top tier guys year in and year out on the offensive line. And when we see that all come together, it's going to be, I think, pretty terrifying. I'm going to move over to defense here for the last couple I wanted to talk about before we end the show. Linebacker, I think, is another instance. It kind of mirrors what I was just talking about with the offensive line. How about this one? The four best linebacker recruits Oregon has ever landed have all been had from the 2019, 2020, and 21 class. Justin Flo, Noah Sewell, Mace Funa, Keith Brown. Three of those guys, the top three guys are probably going to be starters this year. Flo, Sewell, and Funa. That's one, two, and three on the list. Those are probably going to be two of your inside, you know, starting inside linebackers and one of your outside guys. So if anyone asks if this is the most talented linebacker core Oregon's ever had, based on recruiting rankings, the answer is yes, <laughs> by a lot. Number seven on the list is Adrian Jackson. And number nine on the list is TJ Dudley in 2022, a guy who will hopefully sign, hopefully sticks it out, who's a verbal commitment right now. This linebacker stuff is, again, like the offensive line, pretty scary. And has the potential to be like the core of one of the best defenses Oregon's ever had. Potential. They have to prove it. You know, Sewell was the Pac-12 freshman defensive player of the, of the year last year, and Funa started last year and has played a lot, but the other guys haven't really shown much yet, whether that be Flo or Brown because they haven't played, or Jackson because he's been hurt. But I think it's pretty easy to see why you should be optimistic about where Oregon's going at that position group. And then I wanted to finish at corner because while I've been pretty critical of the group, it's just been based on experience, not talent. And that plays itself out when you look at that position too. The top two guys Oregon has ever landed at the position are on this year's team. In fact, they could in theory be the starters. I don't know if that'll be the case. One of them will definitely start. The other one, I'm not sure. Number one on the list is Dante Manning. Number two is Mikhail Wright. Wright obviously is going to start. He was first team all Pac-12 last year, one of two guys on Oregon's team that returns with that kind of recognition, the other one being Thibodeau. So he's going to start. Manning in the spring game showed some signs he could be that good, but I think it's probably worth being a little patient there. And then number seven and eight on the list are two true freshmen 
who signed in 2021, Devontae Dickerson and Jalen Davies. Davies was here in the spring. He, along with Manning, kind of manned the ship in the spring game at corner as there were some, in, you know, some inavailabilities. I'm not going to say injuries because Mark Criswell didn't specify why they weren't available. They weren't available. And I thought Davies and, and Manning honestly both had some really nice moments there. But these are young players, and I think that's why there's some concern at corner. But it's not talent-related because, like I said, the top two guys are on the team this year. One of them is proven, and then seven and eight are also on the year. Are, are, sorry, are also on the team this year. Um, this is a position group, by the way, that if you just want to talk about groups, organs had the most success with historically, and that's probably a full another full show that we could run through. But historically, like cornerback, their top ten guys are all in the top sixty-two rankings, regardless of position. Pretty impressive. A lot of top-tier guys. A lot of guys that are high four-star recruits. Manning's a five-star. And let me actually I, I, let me wrap it up right here because I think it's kind of fun to run through this one. And, and I will say, if you are not familiar and you want to look more in depth or carry out your own research on this kind of thing, go to DuckTerritory.com. Uh, scroll over the football recruiting tab and then go almost to the bottom of the right column. And you, you'll find the all-time commits list. That's where I found all this information. And it's a really fun, like I said, if you're a diehard recruit, Nick, and you've been doing this and following this for a long time, I think you're going to absolutely love looking through these lists. I've compiled them for the greater audience because, frankly, I don't think everybody has the time to, to do what I did, which took about two hours to sort through all this. But it's, it's fun. So go check that out. If not, I wanted to just wrap it up here by running through Oregon's all-time top 10 list from an all-time commitment perspective. So these are the 10 best commits Oregon has ever landed. And I want to run through this really quick just to kind of end it on. Here's some historical context for the caliber of players Oregon has had. Number one, and we all know this one, is Kayvon Thibodeau from 2019. Number two could be his teammate on the second level, Justin Flo, from 2020. Some throwbacks here for a minute. Haloti Nada, number three on the list from the 20, sorry, from the 2002 class. I almost said 2022. That'd be about 20 years wrong. Four is Jonathan Stewart from 2005, star running back. Five is Noah Sewell, currently on this roster. So again, three of your top five recruits ever are on this roster. Number six is Cameron Colvin. Wide receiver from 2004. I guess some of, young, some of the younger Oregon fans may not even know who that is. If you go to his stats reference, stats reference page, you'll see why. I don't want to, that's not trying to be too much of a dig at Colvin, but I think from a recruiting ranking perspective, he has a, a case along with the number 10 on this list to be at the top of the guys who may be disappointed the most. Number seven, DeAnthony Thomas. Number eight, Eric Armstead. Number nine, Kelvin Banks, the recent commit from not even a week ago, committed on the 4th of July on Sunday. And number 10, Canton Kamatuli, defensive end from Hawaii. Never panned out. I think he has like three career tackles. Had, in, had to re retire medically, just didn't, didn't work out. But the hit rate there is pretty darn good, honestly. Like, of the five, sorry, six guys on this list who have already completed their collegiate careers, like four of them are like, Four of them are like three of them are first round draft picks, and the other one is DeAnthony Thomas, maybe the most notable Oregon 
I don't know if I'm gonna call him the most notable, like certainly one of the more recognizable figures in Oregon athletics the last 10 years. Like I still remember going to Virginia to cover that game when Oregon, that was, gosh, I think that was the 23rd, no, before that, 2012 season. And uh, my dad went to the game and he sat up somewhere, you know, and, and with some of Virginia fans, and basically most of them were like, "Yeah, we're here to watch Anthony Thomas." <laughs> that was the kind of guy he was. But Haloti Nada, Jonathan Stewart, and Eric Amstard were all top draft picks, and went on to have solid NFL careers. Anthony Thomas obviously did not, but we'll see what happens with the other four—the ones that are still at Oregon now or will be soon. I just think from a recruiting perspective to wrap this up, I wanted to put things in more context here. And I know, of course, you're going to say over time, you're going to just like all the records fall in football or basketball and a top 10 list of Oregon's all-time leading rushers in 1990 probably looks a lot different than one in 2022 or 21. But this is happening, I think, in – faster pace than you would expect that they're kind of rewriting this list that these lists are now basically full of guys currently on the team again like 36 guys out of 85 on the roster are among the 10 best recruits Oregon's ever landed at their respective positions I just think that speaks to how great things have gone in recruiting under Mario Cristobal there's really no way around it you know, and I just think this provided a little better context. It did for me, at least. I hope it did for those listening. I think we're going to wrap it up there. My first solo show. Hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. So for Eric Scopel, this has been another episode of the Ots and Audibles podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you folks later.